Welcome to the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust Podcast. As a private nonprofit foundation serving the Pacific Northwest, our goal is to help build the capacity of nonprofits through thoughtful investment in individuals and organizations. On this podcast, we want to share insights and information from leading voices in a variety of sectors to help nonprofits flourish and thrive in order to serve the common good. For season three of our podcast, we're taking a moment to reflect on our benefactor, Jack Murdoch. We're looking at current industry leaders who focus on and exemplify key areas and traits that were of particular importance and interest to Jack. In today's episode, Steve Moore, the executive director of the Murdoch Trust, discusses the role faith-based organizations play in serving our community with Jan Elfers, the president of Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon. EMO is a statewide association of Christian denominations, congregations, ecumenical organizations, and interfaith partners. Committed to mutual respect and understanding, EMO brings together diverse communities of faith to learn, serve, and advocate for justice, peace, and the integrity of creation, where they serve more than 18,000 individuals throughout the year. A graduate of Lewis and Clark College, Jan went on to earn her master's at Merrillhurst University. Prior to her current position overseeing the statewide nonprofit, she held multiple roles with EMO, starting her career with the organization in 2003. She's received numerous awards for her leadership and service and regularly serves on the board of directors of community-focused organizations. Enjoy today's episode. Jan, you're one of the most significant leaders in the faith community and, and in the community uh, in Oregon. And, you know, as you kind of look at the 35,000 foot level, you're kind of looking at what's going on in our state and our region. Uh, how would you describe the health and the challenges of the faith communities uh, around the state and the region? You know, we have been in transition for some time. So pre-COVID, we were um, looking at the future because we see that um, church church membership is in decline, and that's a national trend. Um, The mainline churches are declining at a steeper rate than uh, evangelical churches, but but more the younger generation is less attached to a a membership in a religious institution, uh, are spiritual but not religious. But what we're finding is that there is a deep hunger in um, our region and of course everywhere for uh, spirituality, for for a hunger for what is bigger than me, for the common good, for seeking making lives better, our own lives better, and understanding a connectedness between us. And I think that's really uh, epitomized in the Northwest. We are kind of the canary in the coal mine. We have, we see the trends first, and then they move to the rest of the country. So as we see um, church memberships decline, people um, uh, joining less frequently churches, But we also see, as I have mentioned, a deep hunger for doing um, acts of kindness, for for really doing the work that we would call the the Christian um, social services. So we see great numbers of people coming to our food house to volunteer. 
coming to um, working on affordable housing. And, and the irony of it is sometimes, and not infrequently, that is a way into finding your faith and find in a new way and finding um, that acts of kindness and, and being um, thinking about your neighbor make us more open to the values that we share as, as Christians and people of faith to love God and love our neighbor. And so um, those trends are, are, are continuing where we're, our churches are, uh, have food shelters and have uh, affordable housing and have nonprofits on their sites. And so there is a, um, I think, a real hope in this transition, but it's truly a transition time for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, that's really great insight. You know, one of the things that uh, we notice is that oftentimes those that aren't in a faith community, uh, be it Christian or otherwise, they often develop uh, kind of misconceptions about faith communities. Yes. What would you say some of the common misconceptions about faith communities are as you interact with elected officials, nonprofit leaders that don't have a faith connection or other leaders in the community? Yeah. You know, I think I, there, ha, there are people who have been wounded by our faith communities. And the first thing, you know, we hear a lot of your judgers, you know, you, ju you judge, you don't love. And, um, and so the, the, the beauty of entering with a posture of service with a posture of, of loving neighbor, of being available to, to meet the needs of our neighborhoods and communities is really changing those perceptions of our mm -hmm. elected leaders. And frankly, one of the, the things we hear over and over again from our elected leaders is, we want to listen to you because you don't have a hidden agenda, which sometimes, you know, if you're a lobbyist and you're being paid by someone to, to promote the effort, which is fine. But what we do when we meet with our elected leaders is we try to bring in the voices of those people who are, who are living in poverty, who are really struggling and suffering and letting those voices be heard and, and speaking on, on the behalf of those people, but also hopefully letting them speak for themselves about how um, systems have, there are barriers in place for them to be able to grow and thrive. And as people of faith, we wanna try to remove those barriers so that everyone can experience um, the fullness of God's plan for us to live and thrive and be productive citizens, to have families, to achieve our dreams and goals, so. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said. Uh, you know, one of the things that you've been embarking on in recent years has been the common table, bringing people of uh, just interfaith connections together and saying, we have more in common than we do apart. How might we work together? What, how has that gone? And where are there two or three things that you'd say, this ended up being so positive? And, and then on, on the other hand, this continues to be a challenge. Yeah. It has been an incredibly wonderful experience, with, not without challenges for sure. But what we saw was, you know, as time has gone on, we, we separate ourselves from one another. Now more than ever, our separateness is happening in our churches, in our neighborhoods, even in our friendships. And without those 
friendships and relationships, we, we tend to otherize that person who has a different opinion, whether it's politically or because of they're a different race or a different religion. And we really wanted to, to meet that head on and say, we want to strive to be in relationship with one another, to build friendship and out of those friendships, build trust and, and find our common values because there are so many common values we share and celebrate those even as we acknowledge and celebrate our differences. It's not, it, and to know that uniformity and unity are two different things. Yeah, yeah that's a very unity, important. Yeah. But uniformity is not possible because there is great diversity in, in being a human person. So we've had, for example, um, uh, a black church leader um, and a Mormon leader come together to have a Christmas service together where they, they, they sang Christmas carols. And we had a packed audience of um, uh, people from the black church and Mormons it, sitting together side by side singing Christmas carols together. That was a very moving evening. Um, we have a Jewish leader, a rabbi here in Portland who um, connected with one of our common table leaders in Roseburg, Oregon at an evangelical church in Roseburg. And they decided to have discussions together about their faith and um, to just get to know one another. Yeah, I heard about that. Heard how uh, fun yeah. and exciting it was. Right. So these are these kinds of connections put a face on that other, that person you perceive as other. And when we get in proximity with another person and know their name and hear their story and they hear ours, something shifts in us and we move from being opponents to being friends and then when we have a difference we first of all look at that friendship and we consider that as we have this difference and we can we can sit with that together and respect one another and not um, demonize one another and so that has been a tremendously rewarding experience I, I will say that the, the protests this last summer um, brought a challenge of how do we protest in our streets about racial issues that we clearly need to address and what, what is the methodology that best achieves those goals. And so we've had some, some difficult discussions about the kinds of ways we, um, we speak out against injustice. I don't think there's been disagreement about the fact that there is injustice, but how do we do that in, in the most impactful and an effective way, but we're hanging in there together. We have not left the table. And I think yeah. that's the important thing that we stay. Yeah. That's together. a great way to say it. Everybody stayed at the table. Yep. Don't leave yeah, the table. That's, that's yeah. good. Uh, a friend of mine's grandmother uh, loves to say the the biggest room in the house is the room for improvement. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> I love that. I think that's that, that, that is really good. As you look through uh, this, look over this last 18 months, 12 months, what would be two or three shout outs that you would say, people may not be aware of this, but this church did this, this synagogue did this, this group of people did this, this uh, Muslim center did this. Yeah. What would be some shout outs that you might give to various groups? You know, the, the, 
the numbers of people who were hungry in our community rose exponentially. In our own Northeast Emergency Food Program, we were serving about 55,000 people a year. And last year we served a half a million people. So the, the numbers have risen exponentially. And to a, the Muslim Educational Trust has risen to that and has fed people. Our Northeast Emergency Food Program has done the same. So many faith communities have opened up their doors to serve um, meals to people in their communities because they see, we're seeing how churches are not simply places of worship. That is an important role we play, but we are also a, a resource for our neighborhood to meet the needs of our community. And so our churches have been unbelievably um, uh, courageous and, and generous in opening their doors to meet the needs. Affordable housing, our um, churches have opened up their doors to warming shelters, to um, have uh, people be able to get COVID vaccinations. Um, it, the list goes on and on and on. Um, in the wildfires, churches stepped up in courageous ways to um, meet the needs of communities who were devastated by the loss of, of uh, their homes in the wildfires. I mean, it, this year has been like, oh Lord, and not another thing. Yeah. <laughs> really, the pandemic and the you know the social unrest, and then the wildfires, and yeah. and just we just have been resilient and coming back again and again and again to meet those needs because they have they have definitely risen and they're they're still high. Um, th that piece of it is still of great concern. We have many people who are as we know, who are without housing and without um, enough food to eat. So, um, but I, I applaud, we are, we are a small but mighty group of faith leaders in this state. And that's for, for being deemed the nun zone. Our faith communities do an outsized um, load of, of work. Without our faith communities, our social services would suffer greatly. And so I, I give, um, all and all across the state, um, small towns, they are really truly the backbone yeah. for those kinds of services. So yeah, we saw in that Baylor study that 65% of food and shelter were provided by, uh, faith-based organizations yes. of some kind. Yes, it is a majority. And, um, people might not realize that when they say that the, the faith community is small in a state like Oregon. But when you see those kinds of numbers, you know that our, our numbers do not reflect the, the magnitude of the work and the impact we have on, on the state um, of Oregon and Washington, too. Yeah, yeah. It, as you think about the challenging divisiveness that is kind of present in the culture and kind of just runs as a thread, even through faith communities and families and uh just everywhere. What are two or three things that are, that you think you're encouraged by, that you yeah. think these are going to be seeds that will bear fruit uh, and that will help us get through this? Yeah. Well, certainly the Common Table Initiative and the, and the continued work is, is something I'm very, very encouraged by. And I, and their year-long commitment to uh, reckoning with race that started in October and continues 
meeting twice a month to talk about uh, racism in our state. That has been a really um, impactful way to educate and to bring people together. But um, there's, uh, there are, I personally involved in several initiatives. We have a, a group called uh, the Interfaith Peace and Action Collaborative. And we are a group of um, their, their clergy, their activists, their police, their law enforcement, their uh, people who are both protesting on the streets as well as people who are um, doing the, the hard work of trying to figure out how to, how to both um, make reform in, in police as well as um, keep the peace. And we have, it's, it's really encouraging to see the honest conversations that, I mean, the, no holds barred, people speaking from their life experience, a black woman speaking from her life experience of being afraid for her young son to go out on the streets with a police officer who tells his or her story about the, the fears of, of living in a culture that right now is, you know, police officers are reviled and, and sitting around a table and, and humanizing one another and sharing stories without candy coating it, but also in the, in the process of, of sharing our narratives, something shifts, there's a change. We see one another as human beings and we see that we share, we all share fear and we all share the desire to have a society where we're not afraid, where we can um, work together, where we can bridge our divides and create uh, solutions to the, the real challenges that we face. And I do see these happening. I have, I can think of three or four groups that I'm personally involved in who are bringing together people from, from really different worlds and different sides of the equation to talk. And, um, and I don't see any other way. I, building those kinds of fit, friendships is a radical act of, of act of faith because we are, when we say we love God and we love neighbor and we love our enemy, you know, our so-called enemy today is that person that we may disagree with, but we may actually in the process of sharing stories, we always find more in common with one another than we do the things that we disagree on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, we have a situation where a number of churches have had shrinking congregations and people are trying to think creatively about the utilization of that space. Uh, are there things that you're seeing or hearing about that you're encouraged by that would say that those sacred spaces may be able to serve and be utilized by other faith communities or by other groups and everything that you might Absolutely. be able to? Yes. Yes, Steve. I, I see our leadership. Um, I have a monthly meeting with bishops and executives from denominations and every one of them to a person is talking about this very issue. How do we, we, we are um, land rich in a lot of ways. We own a lot of buildings that are uh, not even half full on Sunday mornings. We know that there are so many needs in our neighborhoods and so many ways that that church space could be filled to the gills with, if we, if we are to rethink what it means to be church. Certainly 
worship is a vital part of, of being church, but there are many other ways that we, when, when we step out of that Sunday service, we are, we are still the church. And that means we go out and meet the needs of our community. If there's suffering in our community, we, we figure out ways to, to address that. And so we have churches, we have a whole consortium, a land use consortium of churches who are getting together to say, we'd like to convert some of our space to affordable housing. How can we do that as communities? And it's overwhelming when you're trying to do it as a little church by yourself. Yeah. But if you gather together a group of churches who want to do that and put your heads together and gather resources, it becomes really possible to dream big dreams and to um, cooperate with one another and with the um, government to to address. It's a win-win. You know, we yeah. address issues that need to be addressed, and we also um, renew our sense of purpose. You know, when your church is shrinking and um, you, you might have an aging population. You, you, you want to have, what is our, where, who are we now? And I think this is a really vital role that our churches can play is repurposing our buildings to meet the needs of our community that are growing. And um, so uh, we're, we've been working with those efforts to try to um, create opportunities for churches to have discussions about that and together come up with some ideas and dream and vision together. Yeah, I would love to talk more with you about that. That's something that we've been thinking a lot about across the region yes, and yes. Uh, and have had some research done and some uh, conversations about. Yeah, with crisis yeah. comes opportunity. You know, yeah, it, that's really true. you can shift that word of crisis to say, no, 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 this is, this is an opportunity for, you know, if we, as Christians, we're all about rebirth, you know, that things are die and are resurrected. So what is dying, but what is being born again? And what, what can we nurture to be born again in order to, to love our communities and love God through, through that. So. If there was a leader that, that was listening to this, that you would want to give them just a word of encouragement in the midst of this time that we're living in, what, what would you want to say to them as someone who, you know, has, you know, run a great race here at Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon? You know, I think it, we live in one of the most exciting periods of my personal history because we are in a transition. I think this there is, um, in a time of transition, there's a lot of fear because change is scary, but it also, people are more open to change because things are starting to feel like they're unraveling. And so as leaders, we have an opportunity to lead prophetically, to lead boldly, to lead with really great vision and to make exponential, really big changes because there is a readiness when things that when the ground beneath us is shaking like it is now. So I would encourage leaders to be bold with compassion, to, to vision with care for all of the community, young and old, don't leave anyone behind, but really, um, really pray for a big vision and, um, and, and don't do it by yourself. It's always, we, we need one another. I was reading something today in my meditation that an individual cannot carry the glory or bear the suffering alone. 
that that is for us to do as community, to bear the glory of God and to also, to carry the glory of God and to also bear the suffering of the world as a community together. You know, I think one of the things that really brings me hope is kind of the double-edged sword because in my generation, we joined church. We were joiners. We joined the churches. We were a part of a community. This new generation is less siloed. So the gift and the curse of being in these communities is we can tend to silo and say, we've got it. We don't need your help. We're and this new generation is really open to radical collaborations, to working together, to listening to one another, to building alliances uh, across boundaries in ways that I think we have a lot to learn. Our generation has a lot to learn. And I really do think it's going to take that kind of really um, seeking, bringing our best selves around a circle of um, uh, of community, um, bringing our whole selves, the values we hold deeply, realizing that the person I'm sitting next to also has values they hold very deeply, and bringing those together to, to creatively find a, a more hopeful way forward. And so, and I think I, I'm excited for the next generation, that they, that they are ready to do that. And um, if it will be, I will be praying for them and I want to be a part of it, but I want to, I, I want to stand in back and cheer and say, I'll follow you. <laughs> the technology, I have to say, I'm, I'm the, that's something that has been a gift, but it's also, wow, it's, it's, it's moving so fast. I'm grateful that the technology helped us through this last year. That has been a huge, huge, um, I think, shift and for our religious communities to be able to uh, worship remotely um, with its also caveats, but, but that's, wow. We need, we need those 20 somethings doing that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that really is an example of it takes a village. It sure does. And that wraps up this episode of the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust Podcast. For more information on writing great grants, as well as resources on fundraising, board development, leadership, team management, and a variety of other topics in the nonprofit space, please visit our website, murdochtrust.org. This episode of the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust Podcast was produced by Colby Reed. Music by Lobo Loco via the Free Music Archive. Copyright MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust 2021. All rights reserved.